What are you doing? I want to see the dancing. I mean, they can't see it because we're, you know, audio, but you have to entertain us. That's what you're here for. Bob has been missing a couple weeks. Apparently, the last episode wasn't enough dancing for him, so I'll reward. (laughs) (sighs) It's December. It's ski season. That makes me happy. If the snow returns. It will be back. We got that man-made going right now. Yes, we do. Gore is open, and uh, I saw some pictures of Gore from people going down Top Ridge, one of my favorite runs, and that's always a good early season run. It's like a layered like staircase going down. Mm. Oh, it's my favorite. When that run is groomed, Top Ridge at Gore, when that run is groomed, it's like a staircase, and you can seriously get air 10 times as much air off. There's some... 40-foot takeouts if you want it, if you want to be crazy about it. But Top Ridge is one of my <laughs> naturally favorite black diamonds out there. Uh, you know Top Ridge? You probably raced is, on is it. The one, yeah, top to bottom, it's where the old, uh, yeah. The, where the white face lift was taken from white face and put on the backside at the end of Tannery there. I feel like that's ends. the old Super G Trail. Uh, yeah, I think it was there, yeah, maybe. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. I knew they used to race there a while ago. That's what I was like. so, Zach, so today we're talking right now. <laughs> I am so... As everybody can see, I get distracted by a lot of things, but skiing. Oh. So in the house today, we have Zach Sarkis with us today. I've been so excited to have him on the podcast. Uh, harvest season, uh, he was too busy to have on, but uh, Zach, I've known the name for many years. Uh, I was a journalist here in the Rochester area. Uh, I believe his family, there's a couple generations of skiers in his family. We'll clarify that now. Uh, but their names are always in the newspapers, being leaders in the skiing around here. Uh, and then, fortunately, uh, the smart young man then came into the hemp industry and started a nonprofit organization to kind of uh, pull people together to, to help the help perpetuate the hemp industry in New York and specifically in Rochester and Western New York. Uh, I'm very glad I've been able to meet him uh, when I saw his name on the first uh, he helped put together a really great panel in Rochester last year. Um, and when I saw his name on it, uh, I couldn't wait to meet him. It took me a while to finally get to him because he's so dang busy. But on the episode, we have Zach Sarkis. And then, of course, we have Robert Pye in the house today. Howdy. Begging for my dancing. Luckily, you yep. guys don't have to see it yet. But soon we will, we will be putting some stuff on, on some social media, I think, so you guys can see my dancing. <laughs> Welcome, Zach. Hey, thank you. So how much was I right and wrong about on that little intro? Um, mostly right. He's infamous? He, dude, this dude's a skier. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. He's a skier, but I thought we were talking something else. Where, no. where are we going to? Well, I got to start skiing first because okay. right. this is a December podcast. You're, you're jonesing right? for your skiing. Yeah, and we got Christmas around the corner here. Um, so, 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 Z, you're not a skier currently, right? Like you've pseudo-retired? Yeah, I had a bad injury back in 2011. Went uh, early season up at Stowe, Vermont, and was cutting between two trails about mid-station. Top had like six foot of powder and probably six foot of base. It was just like huge in the mid-station. There was just wasn't the base. Caught a caught what it looked like to be a wind drift and was actually a log. Oh, and I went to absorb it. It launched me and hit tailbone, then head on a rock, just clean, clean rock. Busted my 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 helmet off. Like definitely first concussion. Thought I broke my shins, but they were just shin splints. But uh, yeah, sacrum was messed up, and that led to a pretty uh, kind of chronic backstory, back injury with disc issues and the sacrum, like L five. So. 
G-Force, I, I, you know, once you know how to ski hard, it's it's hard to back off. And yeah, can't I can't just shuffle down the hill anymore. And the G-Forces just compress. And yeah, it, you probably have to have kids and really a family before you might get to the point where you could really yeah. enjoy that slow move pace again. Totally. It's, it's tough for me too. And it's funny you say that because I was never a ski racer, but eventually when I got better and better, more confident, I, I can go fast and I can go hard and I want to. And a lot of times I'll do it on trails that I haven't scoped out or scouted out first. Mm. Not always the smartest thing, especially totally. for second run of the day when you think you're warmed up and then you're killing it, hitting like 40, 50 miles an hour down a trail you've never been down before, but you just want, and you're like, is this a little nudge here? Is it what is like, <laughs> you're such an idiot sometimes. Uh, people are like, you like to scale? Yeah, I like to careen down mountains unsafely fast. Exactly. <laughs> That's ski. Everything else is just sliding. <laughs> now, you're also an avid hiker as well. Yeah. Right? I mean, not like, uh, I can't say I've done any big trails, but around in the region, yeah. That's what, I kind of gave up skiing to be able to hike in the woods in the wintertime. This is like, I'd rather be able to walk. <laughs> So you're snowshoeing or? Um, sometimes, but usually um, there's a ton of gullies down at the south end of Candago Lake and the Finger Lakes, just, you know, where the waterfalls are. And in the wintertime, no one ever goes up them. So it's just like, it's like pow- fresh powder tracks. Oh, nice. Just you and, you know, the wo- High tour, right? High, high, high tour. tour, yeah. It's a great spot oh. all around there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Going to note that? Oh, I love it down there. It's beautiful. South of Bristol, just keep going down. Yeah, uh, yeah. and then Naples you hop towards Naples, and mm-hmm. there's a couple of parking areas down there. Yeah, really, all any southern tip of the Finger Lakes has some kind of gorge. Yeah, well, I mean, Bob's favorite place, Watkins Glen. I mean, yeah, I love Watkins Glen. Yeah. About south of Seneca Lake. Yeah, totally. So most of the ones in the Finger like Candago Lake, they're you know same kind of epic feeling, just slightly smaller scale, but. Okay. Yeah, that's great to know. Mm-hmm. So, so um, now is about your family. Like, uh, you're not the only skier, right? Like, don't you no. have a, like, is it a father, uncle, or something that yeah, like, I, owns the adult race series? It's like yeah. named after him, the Sarkis race series, isn't it? I don't know if it is, but I definitely got an <laughs> uncle who's still winning in his late fifties, like post post multiple knee surgeries. It's just he's an animal, hmm. and yeah. he still competes Empire State Games. Oh yeah, too, yeah, and like, he crushes it. He's <laughs> a beast. <laughs> it's just in some people, it's ingrained in some people. Yeah. Um, so now, all right, so your family then, they're obviously sick athletes, like being outdoors, all the rest, fresh air, um, that helped bring you t- into the hemp industry. Do you th- so do you think mm. one in the same like lifestyle philosophy, because to me, I, f- I feel like I gravitated this way a lot because I love the outdoors and it just part of me. Mm. Um, what do you think? Is that the same for you too? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it all goes back to, uh, cannabis in in my youth you know and it's 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 better to be outside than to be sitting you know in front of a television or something like that i think it brings out uh, the urge to explore and so i'd say that um yeah i grew up outside when i was a kid it's like we had a backyard and that's where i stayed and it it was uh only you know never had video games stuff like that just was kind of always being pushed outside rain sleet or snow and um yeah just kind of continued to like that kind of foundational relationship, it's like you don't lose that. Um, you know, you you can you can move to a city, you can stay in front of computers, but it's uh, if it's something you stay connected to, it's it feeds you as much as the food we eat, you know. It's funny because when I ski up in the Adirondacks or Vermont, I meet a lot of people who are from Jersey and and from cities, mm-hmm. and it's really their escape. Like they need to get up there and, and get out. There's a lot of people you meet like that. They know that's their escape. That they need it, right? Totally. Um, because you get in those cities and you don't have that same fresh air when you get out in the morning. You know. I, I mean, even like green space is like living in the city. You got like 
put my dog on a leash and walk her, you know, a handful of blocks to get to the nearest park. It's like, that's, that's a different way of living. Um, and so growing up in more suburban area or even more rural area, um, it's just, yeah, that separation definitely has an impact on our nervous systems, on our psychology, et cetera. So it's, uh, yeah, I think just thinking back to the days of skiing, it's like being down at Bristol like multiple times a week. And even if you're the only one out there or just solo on a chairlift, just cruising, it's like just you and nature. And that that's something that, that feeds you. Yeah, when you hear like, uh, what, I love it when I'm going up a chairlift and you're usually next to um, where there's natural water, where, where there's runoff. Mm-hmm. And it's so amazing when there's three feet of snow there, but you still the runoff from the snow melting mm-hmm. at the bottom. Yeah. Going down, you know, funneling into those crevices and uh listen to that when there's nothing else going on it's just it's the best that's cool yeah um so how old are you uh 30 30 all right so you're still young and holy smokes uh what high school did you go to what part canadagua canadagua so so you're can't you guys are canadagua guys yeah Uh, so that's right around the corner from bristol so it's your backyard yeah like 15 minute drive i i I, I was i got probably every year of my skiing career was getting 100 days plus like just crazy amount of skiing Oh man, that is that's being spoiled. Yeah, truly, it's it's excessive. But it's how like, old were you when you started? Uh, probably started skiing, being held between you know, like in the pizza style between yeah. my dad's legs, and I was like one, you know, that like, quick. Yeah, just like and really started ski racing probably at four and a half, five, and then it became a thing. Did like the Bristol ski team, so traveling all over New York State, and then uh, the Candagua high school team, and then you know Park Rat on the side. Oh yeah, you had to go out and get your adrenaline out. Yeah, yeah. because you can only go down Comet and Rocket so many times training, right? Like, yeah. you had to get out and do something. You gotta, like you, once you peak at like seventy miles an hour straight shot and you know two ten super G skis, <laughs> you're like, okay, I gotta start throwing. I gotta start hucking it over seventy footers. You know, no two tens are very long skis, folks. Those are hard to handle skis, man. Yeah. And the amazing turns you guys make with those long skis. I mean, I mean, they only they, and they only turn under speed. You know. Yeah, that's, and it's yeah, that's right. It's the physics, right? Yeah. How, how long did it? Did, so th- that's an interesting question, kind of to make this s- little science science side of it. Um, did it come natural, or did someone actually have to teach you the science of what was going on, or was it just natural in your body because you were athletic and from your family? That yeah, day? we used to do the craziest stuff, like one ski drills, like. The, the ski instructor, our, our coach would carry like 20 single skis down and all of us kids would be skiing on one ski down top to bottom, you know, and then we switch legs like um, always all these different things to like train the body to be adaptable and diverse in, in the skiing world. You know, we do stuff where you'd like watch videos and break it down. But like, I don't know if that ever registered with me. Like I wasn't the best. And there's there's kids that like really could like you could. I mean, we all we all grew. I think um, I was definitely more, though, like. All right, a little bit straighter and a little bit harder, and that's and that's how I'm going to get my edge. Of course, yeah. Yeah, you just want to take it from the edge of that flag to the next flag. Like, yeah, that's all you cared about. What blue line? What? Yeah, what blue line? You were not oh, looking yeah, at the blue yeah, lines. Yeah. No, were, no, no, no. You're looking at the edge no. of that gate. Yeah. You wanted the corner of that gate as best as you could hit that gate. Yeah. Uh, my son skied a uh, race for one year, and I was so disappointed. Ron quite can't. Uh, qu- the team got closed off you know they didn't have enough funding whatever mm-hmm. and he was so mad because his eighth grade year he, he actually did very well mm-hmm. he, start, he was like seated something at the bottom you know because he was an eighth grader yeah. and finished like mid-pack by cool. the end of sectionals it's a cool thing it's you know it's a, it's a it's an individual sport and it's also like a cool team sport you know it's also yeah it's it, it's expensive for individuals as well as for teams so it's yeah it's one of those things 
Yeah, it, it was too bad because there wasn't enough kids really to justify the bus going down. Yeah. yeah it was tough. But my, what my son has is a passion for the sport where right now he is just itching to go ski this winter like he's That's like awesome. been talking about it he's been home for thanksgiving and he is all about like this winter wanting to get out there and and hit the buffalo mountain so there's a uh, this club out of ub that basically gives you season passes kind of you know modified season passes for four mountains swain uh, peak and peak i believe it's buffalo ski club and uh holiday valley cool. and then they get bus there's buses different days to the different places That's awesome. or he can drive himself obviously so and it's for like three hundred fifty bucks for the season. It's affordable, especially where like you know passes at single local mountains are expensive. Yeah, if you, you go to Bristol right now, I think it's a eight hour pass is something like seventy five, eighty yeah, bucks. It's ridiculous. Something like that. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, and I understand that there's cost to making snow, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's not that expensive. <laughs> I love it. They have to fund Roseland Park. That's right. <laughs> All right. So how about growing up in the Canandaigua area? Let's just talk about that in general for people because Canandaigua is part of the Finger Lakes of New York, mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know. Uh, it's not quite wine country, Canandaigua, a little bit further um, east of there is, but Canandaigua is a beautiful area, uh, a smaller town feel uh, away from Rochester. I think it's... 30 miles from the city of Rochester. Yeah, it's like 30 minutes flat to get yeah. there. Yeah. I used to work at the Canandaigua Post Office for oh, two cool. years. Oh, cool. Nice. Uh, yeah, so so I'm aware of Canada. It was a 32 door-to-door drive from around to quite 32 miles. Nice. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I could fly. It was 30, 30 I'm sorry, 30, 32 minutes. I forget how many miles it was, but 32 minutes exactly. But it was, I had a great time down there. The people of Canandaigua really, um, it's a very diverse mix of people from people who live in trailers all the way up to people who have money on that lake it's expensive yeah. to live on that lake yeah. but but it's a it's an interesting mix how everybody lives together and, and really the community so talk about the community can a little bit yeah i don't know <laughs> growing up there you got mixed reviews and going back there it's like it's not really a place that uh, inspires me i think land it's like one of the most beautiful places south of canandaigua canandaigua lake itself is magnificent um I'd say that, yeah, hopefully it's heading in the right direction. I think some of the development choices are pretty poor along the shoreline. Um, I think it's really a place that's stuck between this old-time feel, keeping things the way they have been, and um, trying to perceive what change can look like, but only planning so far out. And so when your developments look like they're going to be out of style in 10 years, like that's a bad move. Um, And not really, yeah, and you know, you used the word diverse, I think, there's aspects of diversity, maybe socioeconomic, but not cultural. Um, and there's, it's definitely a pretty white place. And, um, yeah, that's true. It, yep. That plays into how, yeah, that, 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 there's aspects of that in, in that place. It's a tourist town as well. Yeah. Tourist town. So it's definitely seasonal. Um, and yeah, for like a kid growing up there, it's like, yeah, great for sports. But if you're, if you're into other things, it's like, it's kind of, you know, you can easily be, broadcasted as someone who's bad if you smoke pot you know it's like it's it's a very everyone knows too much about each other that's right that's one of those things that uh never really goes old and and i noticed a little bit it took a little bit for the art culture around there to to really pick up like when i went, mm. worked back there back in the day there wasn't a big art presence or you know mm. that that genre you know what i mean mm-hmm. um, yeah so I uh, it's see. still again it's like young people kind of struggle there because it's it's not necessarily like geneva has had a lot like geneva new york which is at the north end of seneca lake so it's you know 20 miles or 20 minutes east of candegua there's been a really big revival with youth and like you know more farm to table projects and a lot more kind of cultural things happening whereas like candegua just feels stuck um and again that's uh there's probably a handful of reasons you know 
Geneva's got Hobart William Smith, so it has like kind of college presence. So there's always a change and influx there, but still, it's just uh, a certain dryness that's in that area. That I think, uh, yeah, if uh, you're straight edge and square, <laughs> it's like it, it can be form fitting and a good launch pad. It can also be really challenging and, and boring, depends uh-huh. on who you are. That's right. That's right. Interesting perspective. So, uh, what do you got, Bobby? You got something on your mind? Looks like. Yeah. Uh, the, speaking of non-progress in 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 uh, Canandaigua, what's going on with that hotel frame that has been sitting oh God, on the, the birdcage <laughs> on Kershaw Beach? Yeah. For about what five six years? Um, if I'm not mistaken, the developer th- they basically held that property hostage and were trying to get the the city and the state to to fund this project. And um, if I'm not mistaken, they found someone to go back in on the project. They've cr- they put a roof up and now siding in time. So that like it was basically like last year. If they didn't do something, they were gonna have to tear all that metal down because it's gonna be too exposed. Wow. Yeah, and so it's just starting to move. And the same like there's all these uh, these. The, the Morgan, Bob Morgan, had been do, doing this huge development on the north end, and it's a multi-stage thing, and it's, like, right on the waterfront, whereas, like, Geneva has this, like, great, spacious state park at the north end of their lake, um, and it's just this, like, you got this big development happening. The backside of it is Parkway Plaza, which is just, just like, that's where the project should have been developed, and, like, the grassy area that they, they, they're putting this project on could have been a, a state a park. park precisely. And it's, like, even just that... You know, Kershaw Park is a very narrow window of beach that's framed by a cage where you have this like whole shore that has sandy baseline that you could pull some of those rocks out and actually have a really great community space. But there's just that limitation. It's, it's there's some good, good and bad, right? Um, what he's talking about is the north end. I've spoken about this before. The north end of Canoga Lake is, is shallow. Mm-hmm. And then they also put a buoy line across where boats can't cross. So it becomes a actually great spot for families but he's right the beach is actually like maybe on a a third of the total north end not right? even man. Yeah, it's yeah, like a fraction. Know, it's a postage stamp uh but the one nice thing that they do offer is like anybody that goes there's master swimmers and they're not swimming in the area where people have to be watched by lifeguard mm. can go in there for free and go off to the side and swim that buoy line back mm-hmm. and forth so so there's some trade-offs to what they do, but he's right. Kershaw Park is a narrow strip, so I used to do the Finger Lakes tri- Triathlon. Um, it's one of the fir- it's the first triathlon I ever did, um, and it was out of Kershaw Park. There it was when I was working at the post office there that you know I I kind of learned about triathlons and started training, and he's right there. But and then there's also this awesome walkway along a canal there, like between the post office and the front area. And then if they had tied that into where the two trailer parks were and kept a couple of the old, nice, cozy, small businesses where I think there was a little drive in maybe there in an ice cream shop, it would have been a really cool cult, uh, to, uh, uh, supplement to the tourists there. Yeah, I agree. And now and it's Parkway like Plaza. Big, now it's like high end condos. <laughs> no one's gonna be able to afford or they will be seasonal. And then, you know, really expensive storefronts that local businesses can't afford to actually shift into to rent because the, the overhead's so high. Like, why would they move their Main Street business down to that spot? Yeah, that's right. That's so. too bad. And you got the college there, too, CCFL, yeah. and that has great venue for yep. they bring in concerts. Totally, yeah. CMAC. I've worked at CMAC for a long time, directing all their parking. Um, and actually, right now, FLCC is launching their uh, a cannabis track, an associates for cannabis in their horticulture department. I'm actually sitting on the board. I was invited to sit on the board for their horticulture department to help them shape this program. And next year, they're starting with biology. Um, so it's it's cool thing, you know. It's it's it, as square as that town can be. There's like these cutting edge things that are also happening, which is cool. 
That is so cool. So tell us a little bit more about that because I know uh, Morrisville also in New York State. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they just launched their program this fall. So mm-hmm. so are you guys using that as a model at all? Or are you guys um, doing no, your so, own? I mean, it's Morrisville. Um, I can't speak too much to what they're doing, but they've been at the, the cutting edge. Um, Dr. Jen uh, Gilbert Jenkins, she's been a leader. Um in the industry and she's really anchored the research like you know they're an agricultural based school there and so they're really looking at the industrial scale applications production etc um and so flcc has a really strong horticulture program and so you know there's going to be industrial scale cannabis there's also going to be horticultural scale and really i I see cannabis and hemp as a doorway to cannabis as a doorway to horticulture and you know more like the greenhouse production and plants that require a little bit more maintenance but that give back a lot more once you take care of them you know like a well-fed tomato and a well trellis tomato provides endless fruit um, and cannabis can really be the same way um so these guys That's are a great t- analogy, by the way. Yeah, I love that because yeah. I use tomatoes as an analogy for people all the time to explain the cannabis plant. Yeah, so I love that analogy. Yeah, totally, um, and yeah, so they're developing a program that's based around horticulture, and it's like when you're taking a horticulture program, you have to learn all about you know you learn about everything from the soil all the way to um, the variety of different plants that might operate in a setting that require you know like a garden or um you know ornamentals etc greenhouse production so they're taking this approach they're starting with like the biology um of cannabis so looking at you know from its genetics to the 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 expression of of sex or the genes etc um which i think that's just as a these are people who are coming from a horticultural background so who are who know a lot about caretaking, but here's this deep dive into and how does this apply to cannabis. Um, and it starts in this kind of bio- biology perspective, but then beginning to build out more of like the business support. Um, so like how, uh, you know, beginning to tailor a whole like uh, two-year program, like a degree, an associate's degree to cannabis. It's, it's basically tying in everything that's there, but having more like business classes related to cannabis or... Um, yeah, production systems related to cannabis, et cetera. So it's it's kind of taking the existing resources and tailoring them to specifically the hemp and cannabis plant, which is which is pretty awesome. How how large do they want to make the program? Sounds just just from what you're talking about, it sounds like about thirty classes. I, I would say, um, yeah, by to to have the the actual certificate, it's probably gonna have to be something like that over the course of two years. You know, I mean, you're thinking. I, I, yeah, I can't like it's I intense. Saw, yeah. It's pretty intense. Yeah. I like it. It's yeah. needed. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one of the things And it's also like people go through that. They come out with like, you know, it's what your resume, your what your experience like you know, to get your associates, you have to have fifty hours of experiential learning. Um and that's kind of a, a place where hemp lab I think can come into play. But it's like actually getting hands on experience, which that makes you valuable because right now there's a huge shortage in the industry and even in places like canada where you know they have this this industry that's been growing for a bit it's like they're importing workers from all over because they just don't have enough skilled labor to be successful um and so that's one thing i can't stress enough is like people don't know what's coming in general let alone the workforce and skill sets required to actually be have a successful sustainable industry that is giving people you know their worth in time uh, through compensation because, you know, they're sure there's going to be $12 an hour jobs, but realistically, you know, if the more expertise you have, like you shouldn't be making below 20 bucks an hour in this industry. 
Um, and that's like right now. And as it continue, as, as minimum wage goes up, so should, you know, the value of people who have experience. And you're talking about so many different facets of the industry because mm-hmm. you could be talking about people who just need to understand trimming of plants, totally. right right down to the basis or or actually planting the clones mm-hmm. or seeds all the way up to processing where you might have to have people that uh, need to understand extraction and making products mm-hmm. uh, and doing both in the same day. Like there's totally. a lot of diversity within, within the industry as well. So many, so many jobs. Hemp Lab. So, is it would it come to you in a dream? Let's talk. You've mentioned Hemp Lab now. Let, let's yeah, tell yeah. people what Hemp Lab is, and and I mean, you you brought a couple big events already together. So, so let's talk yeah. about how that started and what what you guys been doing. Yeah, totally. So, Hemp Lab, uh, definitely, it came out of this understanding that if there's not education and like kind of an ecosystem, a support system to 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 help businesses specifically small medium scale businesses then the opportunity for success regionally is extremely limited um, you know we put on our first event last year so hemp lab is a registered 501c3 we're not for profit organization that's focused on education um, you know educating communities businesses you know individuals about the cannabis industry from seed to sale um, incubating so that's creating a platform to, of support services whether you are an entrepreneur or a business or an individual looking to build your skills like creating a system to help um, support anyone who's looking to get into this industry to find their niche and you know uh, acceleration accelerating the industry by putting on events by building community by building the conversation as well as creating a platform that hopefully can help provide people with access to the resources they need to scale moving forward. So our thing is, you know, educate, incubate, accelerate. And it's, it comes down to, if there's not an intentional effort to support small, medium scale businesses, then we can't compete with the multinationals and out-of-state actors. And I believe strongly that this region, specifically New York state, you know, the Finger Lakes region is really well positioned to thrive in a craft industry, as well as like, you know, taking products from craft to global, um, and innovate. You know, we have so many universities. We are an agricultural hub, we're an education hub, a growing tech hub. Um, we have an abundance of water and resources. All these things that play out that there's no reason why we shouldn't be at the forefront of the cannabis industry. Obviously, we have hurdles to get through with legislation. Um, but if we look past that, no one knows what the hell they're doing or what they're talking about. And that creates a risky environment where a lot of people are going to fall hard on the face. So we're looking to create a platform that can is really rooted in education um, that can give people access to industry experts. So we connect experts to stakeholders and through that beginning to build out models that support people through, you know, business support services like coaching or office hours that we believe can transition into like an incubator, whether it's a brick and mortar or something that is just serves as a, a place where people can have the support they need. Um, that's the direction Hemp Lab's moving in. Is this your culmination? Is this something you came up with? Oh, yeah, you and- yeah, yeah, yeah. So I came up with this, I think I registered the domain last, like, uh, I don't know, last June or something. Uh, we put on our first event at the Wegman School of Pharmacy at St. John Fisher College last year in November, and we had, you know, five PhDs uh, speaking and, you know, one, like, the other the other guy who's not a PhD is just an incredible innovator in, in the, the hempcrete world. So um, again, it's like it came from this place of seeing like Binghamton getting all this money, getting all this traction, other places in the state talking about hemp and moving forward. And it's like this crickets over here. And it, like to me, it's like uh, I'm at that pisses me off <laughs> and turning that right. into this passion of like, OK, I know I can do this. We can build this. Let's bring it together. Um, and 
yeah, just kind of put my head down and, and drove forward and we were able to bring them. So when you're making these phone calls to bring people together, uh-huh. what gave you any kind of substance at the table or, or, or you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like you're just anybody calling to say, Hey, I want to put this thing together at Fisher, mm-hmm. uh, stakeholders, like, like how did you even get traction? That's, that's one of those things that's like, I don't know if it's fate. I don't know if it's just like synchronicity, but, um, so I, I'd spent a couple of years on the West Coast working in the cannabis industry. That wasn't my initial intention going out there. Um, but developing and refining skills, I've probably spent a few seasons trimming, you know, just acting as a laborer, doing the grunt work, like doing the shit that people don't realize how much work goes into this industry. Um, and coming back with that skill set, um, I actually came back home to uh, officiate a friend's wedding and had a model that we, I was working on and developing on the West Coast that was actually even more applicable to the emerging hemp industry. And, um, yeah, just kind of ran with the torch and just made it my goal to meet as many people as I can. And just, um, one thing led to the next, like doors just continued to open people, like my community continued to expand and support me and like point me in the right direction. And, um, I don't know, a lot of people could see the vision of what I was talking about and, and the urgency and the why, and when your why is strong enough and you're, if you're, um, I think that's that can bring people to the table, especially if it's it's not just your why, but it's a community why. Um, and so, yeah, I think I was just speaking a language that people realized was essential. And the, So how long did it take for people to start calling you to ask your advice about the industry? So probably, you know, this year has been a growth, like kind of a a trajectory, um, especially since like this summer is kind of quiet through the the winter time and just like continuing to refine. But then we had a a big event. We partnered with the greater Rochester chamber of commerce called cannabis business capitalizing on the cannabis economy that those, that was assuming that legalization was coming. That was the one that was at the Hyatt, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so this show, I want to talk to a little more in depth. I talked about it previously, but you were the one who helped put that on. Like, yeah, that was a serious who's who, like, how did you get the guy from Canada who, who like, runs the borders for Canada? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where the partnership with an organization is credible as the chamber, you know. And so how did that even happen? At the 2018 Hemp Lab at St. John Fisher College, Bob Duffy, the CEO and president of uh, the Greater Rochester Chamber of Commerce, he, we somehow got through to him after a lot of attempts, and he heard about it, and he came and gave opening words. And he was just like, anything I can do to support you guys. Like, we know this is coming. Like, this is pre-farm bill legalization. Another reason why, it's like, hemp is going to be legalized federally, and we're not even talking about it. Like, this is the revival of one of the biggest industries. You know, the hemp plant will touch every major industry by one degree of separation or directly, and we're not even talking about it yet. So that's, again, this, like, what the fuck? Like, mm-hmm. let's go. <laughs> like, yeah. it's time to go. Yeah. Um, and so Bob Duffy came, gave opening words. He gave a shout-out, you know, following up. Um, and at a follow-up meeting, I went into this meeting and be like, okay, we need to have, like, a bigger event. Um, and we're having this meeting. Bob's like, so what else can I do? How can I help? He's like, I'm thinking maybe we could do an event. I'm like, yep, let's go. Um, and I created the framework for this, built out all the, the panels. Um, I, I basically, you know, I filled out like three quarters of it and then they brought in some of these high level, like higher level people, um, that really just created this like first in kind, like really first class, like, uh, event like I was I walked in there being like wow like that that was something I was else. amazed yeah and I was amazed at the caliber of people that were in there I mean you had sheriffs represented mm-hmm. you you had uh, heads of businesses represented you you had every every aspect of the industry totally talking and, in one forum mm-hmm. openly and honestly 
and that was the coolest thing. And like, I knew that this was a platform that we had to look at. Like we're talking about emerging industry. We can't just talk about the potential. We have to talk about the fears. We have to talk about the shit, the darkness, the shadows, you know, the war on drugs, the impact, the disproportionate effect of the war on drugs on people of color or urban areas. Um, we have to talk about the fear that the sheriff community has, you know, these contradictions, each panel kind of had these contradictions of, of like national brands versus local people, uh, you know, sheriff versus social justice. Um, but it didn't get so heated where there wasn't productive talk the whole time. Precisely. That was, was amazing. And that was, I, you know, big shout out to the moderators. Um, and also we really tried to prep and like make it clear that this isn't a pro cannabis event specifically. It's a, this is coming. We have to prepare. And that's kind of been this whole mindset. Like if we are not prepared, if we're not having a really diverse conversation, then we're limiting and we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And there's a lot of talk about inclusivity, about making this a sustainable industry, making this a socially just industry, et cetera. But like, unless we're talking about all those hard points, um, and as, and like our potential is only really met by like, if we can bring the science community in, we can bring the doctors in, we can bring the innovators, you know, these uh, big companies as well as small companies to the table. That's what creates this rich environment that people can begin to, to look at it and then begin to find their place. So from this big picture, then we can begin to drill down and find opportunity, find what the community needs to, to get the support to, to drive success forward. Do you plan on having a certain amount of events per year? Or what's the goals for the next 12 months then? God, um, goals is makes make a living. <laughs> <laughs> and if not, then... Pay bills. Yeah, pay bills. <laughs> um, if, you know, that's been... Um, we're developing a pretty robust schedule for 2020, but also it's it's going to be like a smooth versus overwhelming. Because um, really as a, a startup not-for-profit, we have to really look at what our bandwidth is, both as a group, both financially, et cetera. Um, so what we're looking to do through 2020, probably starting February, um, is a, a seminar, a webinar, and a, a quotation mark here, field trip each month. Um and that's wow it's a lot of events yeah it is but 36 events yeah but you know but that's where and it may fluctuate it depends on who's available um you know time lean or something yeah yeah and it's a definitely there's an opportunity in the winter early spring to like have uh what we're calling like dragging people through the seed to sale concepts like actually look at the supply chain look at the big picture here if you're interested in this industry either as an ancillary participant or someone who wants to have their hands on the plant um, and without that backbone, then we're not growing. And so we're looking to build something where people, so again, the webinar, the seminar and the field trip, uh, maybe we'll do all of our field trips in the summer where people can go see, take clones, you know, get some experience, experiential learning, do transplants or see what a processing facility looks like, et cetera. Cause those things like that, that resonates in people's bones. Um, but in this time where people are really giddy to get in, it's like, you got to ask way more questions than you can make us like, Every single thing you think is an assumption and you got to have at least a couple of questions to back it and look at the industry. And so if we can keep tying experts in just for an hour long seminar of like, hey, this is what I, I can speak to this aspect of the supply chain. I can talk about nursery or I can talk about feeding regiments for your plants and those kind of things that we can continue to create the cycle in this database that people can have access to that, um, again, makes it so they're not shooting from the hip in the dark. Um, we also are talking about doing, um, you know, a either monthly or bi-monthly, it depends, um, 
like kind of networking thing where it's like someone from the community might give a, a 15 minute presentation that creates the context for like what we're talking about that day. So it's like, we got to create a place where people can come. Like there's it's education, it's culture, um, it's business support services. Like the cannabis is so much more than a plant. And we are at the forefront of what this industry will look like here. So like, what does community look like? What is, um, how do we actually vet what the community needs from a hemp lab perspective? Well, it's by creating more events and asking more questions ourselves of like, what's going to help you guys learn? Who do you want to hear from, from the industry that can help you with your decision-making? Um, so all these, all these are assumptions that they'll work like from a business model perspective, I have assumptions that we can move towards an incubator or that networking events might be successful or, you know, these, this seed to sale seminar, six month seminar where people are coming, you know, they're, they got to sign on and it's, uh, you know, X amount to participate, um, that that can be successful, but Hey, maybe it's too early, you know, maybe it's that's next year, but beginning to flesh out what people want and like finding as many inputs to our decision-making process so we can actually make something that supports our community. That That's where we're at right now. There's so many reasons why what Zach is saying is smart. Because, for instance, nobody knows specifically. Now we have maybe, uh, what we grow from maybe 50 permits of uh, holders in the state to grow, and now there's over 400. So in that data, you are going to have a bunch of strains grown. You're going to have, so we need to take advantage of this time, bring everybody together of all these farmers that did one and two acre plots, right? And let's talk about who grabbed what seeds, who did what from clones, pool the information together. That's something where you could your, your group can collaborate and bring people together because this is important data to find out for processors and for people who want smokable flour or who want for craft CO2 processing or whatever mm -hmm. they're going to grow their, their flour for, whether it's grown for hempcrete. And I want to get into this more too, mm -hmm. is we are talking about just a couple different things here. We're talking, you know, we, everybody centers around CBD, the new CBG, um, and obviously THC rec and medicinal, but let's talk about some of the other components of this plant that you're talking about that nobody's talking about, like hempcrete. Mm -hmm. Come on. Like oh, it is so it's, close it's to hempcrete right now. It's freaking incredible. Uh, my buddy, Matty Mead of Hempitecture, he's been at the cutting edge. He actually graduated from Hobart William Smith College in Geneva, and he was in the entrepreneur department and architecture, and he gave a pitch on hempcrete, and he came in second place. His buddy won, um, but he has not stopped to this day and is doing some innovative stuff on helping push legalization of hempcrete. Okay, hemp is legal, but what's your fire code? This is something that's non-flammable. You know, it's antibacterial, antimicrobial, antifungal. But still, there isn't code to implement it. So every town that might want, if you want to build a hempcrete wall or something, you know, something as simple as a wall or reinforced structure that has hempcrete in it, that's, you know, non-structural insulator, um, you still have to go through all the hurdles of this new thing. Just because it's a new thing. And, and you understand why that's out there because people could make bad products like, totally. what is it, the drywall that came out of China for a, year, a couple of years where, you know, with the building house and houston or something and and getting people sick like yeah, so there's yeah. needs to be measures for this for stuff sure. but well, hempcrete should CBD, be measured already right same with all this stuff you know it's like there needs to be standardization there needs to be protect like it's for the consumer's sake i know and as again we were talking about this earlier as a consumer in new york state we've been consuming things you know especially in the cannabis realm that have been unregulated unmitigated and questionable now for better for worse we're all still here you know, it begs the question of how intensive does it have to be, but especially if it comes to, uh, you know, a living scenario in people's homes and livelihoods, uh, yeah, we got to prove that it works. So Maddie's been doing some cool stuff. Uh, I haven't followed up with him recently, but he has, he was working with, um, a university in the Southwest and working with Boeing 
and they were bringing hempcrete into these facilities where they basically use like massive torches to validate like the efficacy or the resilience of hempcrete when compared to fire. Um, so it's like, that's the kind of stuff, like you got to prove that this stuff won't burn by, you know, burning the shit out of it and like actually recording that data and seeing what happens. Cause that's what, you know, having those data sets, then it, it becomes something that could be brought into production. Um, but there's even has to be standards there. Like what's the ratio of lime and water and hemp, you know, these things that, um, is it all the same? If you, you know, if you change the ratios, is it going to change the one, the quality of the product or two, is it going to change how flam flam retardant it is? Uh, those are things that are, yeah, need to be seen. Now, the, uh, like your, your buddy who's making this stuff, what does he do for testing? Are you aware of, like how they, how they test? Like, is there a procedure for cement mm -hmm. testing, right? That you sent your hempcrete to just like they'd have to send regular cement to like, how does that That's work? That's a great question. I'm sure there is. I know they're doing a lot of like DIY stuff. Like I've seen them doing everything from yeah, different blends, um, to yeah, different, um, applications like okay do you hand push it and pack it or do you like they're beginning to bring automation in so like can you have like you know um it running on basically can it pour into place like do you have to hand pack it can you pour it um you know can you get it running on uh, just like regular concrete so yeah precisely. Any, yeah whether you're filling the blocks after they're already there or making the blocks mm -hmm. themselves or can or you make yeah can you make them in advance and then ship it you know like it's all these things that like i'm sure that impacts the curing process and the quality process but um yeah i don't know enough to speak if if they have it it's in. just i like to put this out there and the reason why i'm making you go through this is because this is all the things that hemp i mean hemp i've been saying this forever it's all the ropes that came from the ships oh, from yeah. from england like mm -hmm. back when this country was established like folks hemp has been fiber hemp is strong and can be used for many many things i mean and one thing that we're not even talking about yet but that is like because everyone's talking about cbd and you know great it's one molecule cbg great another molecule thc great another molecule um they'll have their place you know they'll have their recreational their wellness their medical um their craft you know their like mass production um but you know other things you know the fiber obviously is super interesting from a uh like that herd, like, so the hempcrete is like that woody pith material inside the stalk. And if you ever cut like, you know, a big CBD plant, there's so much wood in there. Um, and still, you know, it has pretty strong, thick fibers on the outside. We definitely, uh, I don't know if we'll ever compete with China, for example, from a fiber production perspective to like make clothing, like maybe, um, but more than likely if people grow fiber here, it's gonna, for production's sake, it'll probably get shipped back to China to get processed, you know, <laughs> Is that crazy? um, because we're Canada maybe, right? Yeah, maybe, but still like, do they have the textile infrastructure? Like a lot of that all closed up and went back, you know, it, went, it, it, it changed with the cost of, of labor true. and production. Yeah. Like you can't make yarn, you can't find yarn made in the U S pretty much anymore. Yeah. Unless it's, ha unless it's craft mm -hmm. and that's what we'll see, which is cool. Um, but yeah, big thing is, is the grain, you know, the, the seed from the hemp plant, it's, it's a superfood. It's 33%, it's 30 plus percent protein, 30% plus omega-3, omega-6, you know, perfect ratio fatty acids and a ton of minerals and nutrients. This is something that will disrupt the commodity crop and cereal systems that live like cereal production, like, uh, um, you know, that will have a major impact on everything we eat in the future. And it's like too soon, you know, it's, it's just that's a great soon. point. But I never imagine, even thought about that. But it's all like, the other things I haven't even thought about that. It's like yes. li literally like, and that's the kind of thing they plant it like corn, they plant it like soy, they can rotate it in that it's going to be. And guess what? 
when you know everyone all these cbd plants you know they're growing like sensimilia like it's growing this like keep the males away from the females and that's how you boost resin it's like here's a plant that's trying its best to to, to fulfill its like why ever it's on this earth and so it, it gets stressed out and it continues to push out these 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 sticky receptacles that would catch the pollen you know by pushing pumping out this resin boosting the size of its flower like all we're doing is growing these like super like stressed out female plants, you know, that are just like trying to fulfill their like their path. And that's a big question. Like what actually what's the chemical compounds? What are the terpenes? What are the cannabinoid contents when you actually do pollinate? Maybe not mass pollination. This is interesting. I met someone in uh, the Avenue of the Giants out in California who was beginning to do research on that stuff. He was a, um, a Vietnam vet who was going back to college or, you know, he was studying in university, looking at um, cannabinoids on the, and the impact on the brain. And he was doing controlled pollination to see how the cannabinoid content shifted around that controlled seeding and how that plant interfaced with human like, body. And I'll tell you what, the variety, uh, it was LA Confidential, it was, was the gene. And the stuff that was pollinated... Um, was like the first time in my life, like something that like actually hit me on a level. I was like, wow. Like, um, it was the most grounding, like, like it felt more like a wellness versus like a high, like it like hit me in a way that made me feel really good and like really calm and like clear. Again, this is coming from a background of New York state where it's like, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know where it's coming from. Um, it'll hit you however you smoke it, you know, um, or consume it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we're coming from this place of like, we're all like anti males. And, but the reality is like these fiber and grain varieties, like they're going to be some ratio, hopefully like 70, 30, you know, f- uh, 70 female, 30% male. Um, and again, it's planted like corn, it's planted like soy and for better, or for worse, just to be clear, like modern agriculture is fucked up. And it's like, I, I, I don't believe there's any sustaining business as usual when it comes to the food production systems on planet earth in this day and age. Yeah. It's too bad to say that Yeah, we, but, we should be this far ahead in advance that we should be owning that industry. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, the reality is it's like, you know, there's no, just, this is my, my preacher moment, but there's no sustainability that that word is it's, it's no longer a thing. Cause we cannot sustain business as usual on this earth. There's either regenerative that's practices that rebuild, that regenerate socioeconomic, specifically environmental that continue to build and rebuild soils, you know, communities, um, economically money that builds money, but that goes throughout communities versus just, you know, these centralized massive scale production systems. Um, so, we're talking about when we're talking about grain and fiber, it's probably going to be in this bigger industrial scale, which if done smart, you know, it can be successful. Like if you do rotational grazing, like if you plant your corn, then maybe your soy, then your hemp, and then you spend it a couple of years in fallow where you have cows rotating grazing on there that are, you know, eating and shitting and rebuilding the soil. Maybe that's something that works. You know, uh, maybe we continue at this scale. Long story short, um, these grain varieties, most of them are, are peaking out like post-pollinated, like four to six percent TH uh, CBD content. You know that's not that low um, when you think of like cost-benefit analysis. People are planting orchards right now by hand, and you know a dollar a seed, three dollars a plant. You know ten uh, like thousands of dollars per acre. Like it's thousands for labor, let alone infrastructure. And then it all has to be hand harvested. It all has to be hung or dried or like, you know, whatever, you name it. Like that is so freaking expensive compared to 
I can buy a billion seeds, you know, at a f- like not even a penny per seed because it's just like corn, just like soy. It's like at that cost of production, you plant, you know, uh, like thousands and thousands, like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of plants per acre. Uh, and you can plant a hundred acres. And so now like, okay, you might have a, a five acre plot that is 20% CBD, but like, look at all the cost expenses, time, energy versus a 50 acre plot of grain that has 4% CBD, but you have like ton, like so much more volume, lower cannabinoid content, but higher volume, lower cost of production. Um, and you have this grain that you were able to harvest that you separate from the chaff, like that, that the flower material. Um, and then you can also go cut this fiber, um, as a third cut. So like, I'm, I don't necessarily believe in the three, the three, um, what, what would you call it? Like, uh, everyone's talking about like the two fold harvest, like you're going to get your, your grain and your fiber. And now we're talking about getting the CBD in there. Um, the reality is a fiber crop, a grain crop is not a fiber crop, but you can still use the fiber. Like if you're growing for clothing fiber, you're, you're not growing it for grain. You actually harvest it before the males pollinate. Yeah, before, you know? yeah exactly. Before so, the flower. Yeah. And just before the fiber gets hard, you know, so these things like we're looking at like this in this orchard style planting that will absolutely be there for craft cannabis. Um, but also we have to think about if there's going to be a lot more people planting for grain, how are those crosswinds going to impact with pollination? And are we going to even be able to grow outside? I would say yes. Um, but it's going to be more controlled. It's going to be, it's going to be disruptive. Like we're already hearing about people who like are pollinating their neighbor's farms because you know, they didn't pull the males out. Um, so, it becomes this question of like, what does cannabis production look like craft versus industrial moving forward, especially when we're talking about cannabinoid production, especially when we have like these superfoods and these things that will like disrupt corn and soy. And you can also get cannabinoids out of there. How is your feeling about greenhouses then? Uh, because USDA is even the USDA. We'll talk about them. Uh, a little more depth here in a minute, but one of the things they mentioned in their big 161 page uh, um, recommendation for the hemp plants uh, was that they understand how how the pollination can spread, right? And they understand how there can be cross pollination, which you just mentioned. And they put about a money out to do some research on this as well. Yeah, but, super weird. They're they're like doing GMO crops. It's, it's interesting that they chose to do cross pollination. I mean, I guess that's how you can show if you can modify a gene that would only be expressed through that modification. That's probably the best way to track pollination. But still crazy. But it was actually good to see about greenhouses, though. I don't know. So I want to ask you about greenhouses. So do you think greenhouses are really going to be the way to go for this plant because of the fact that so many farms within 15 miles of each other can affect each other? I mean, true. Twenty miles. You know. uh, So I got a couple comments. I I grew a trial CBD crop next to a trial grain crop, expecting there to be a hundred percent seeding. They were like two hundred yards away with a. a pine tree like kind of hedgerow between them Uh now it was interesting because the wind on this property blew like heavy from west to east the cbd crop was to the south by 200 yards and so like they weren't in their crosshairs this stuff didn't get pollinated by a like heavy pollinated grain crop to 200 yards north um some of the research we're seeing out of cornell right now and it's maybe for the prairies, it's 15, 20 miles, but like in our region where it's wet, it's hilly, you know, it's definitely different than the prairie. Uh, you know, Cornell is seeing like not a lot of, it's at their, this initial stage preliminary that beyond a mile, they're not really seeing much at all. Interesting. 
So back to greenhouses, like is our greenhouses a solution? You know, hearing this from the ag community, especially the craft, like especially organic, you know, f- everyone thought greenhouses were the way to go in the recent past. And like what we didn't realize is they're perfect breeding zones for pestilence, you know? And it's like how, like it's a whole nother world of competition in the greenhouse when we're talking about keeping it clean, sterile environment, Um, you know, airflow, all these things that are a must have. And that still doesn't mean you're going to be safe from like massive outbreaks. And I heard a guy talking um, at the last year at the Canadian Horticulture Society, their annual, their annual, uh, meetup and for the first time ever in like a hundred years they had a full day symposium on cannabis and it was all from these researchers all over north america specifically in canada like people have been studying cannabis medically recreationally now industrially um who are all by the way they've been doing it for 10 years like we know nothing we know nothing about the next big outbreak we know nothing about like uh, these genetics it's like we're we they're they've been doing it way longer than we have and they're all like we just don't know anything um, but there was this guy um, who's, you know, got like a seven acre greenhouse and high, high quality craft cannabis. Um, and someone asked him a question, like, what do you think about these new like million square foot greenhouses? He's like, you know, honestly, like that's that's the root of devastation. If we begin to bring too much automation, too much scale, if you have a like even an seven acres, that's huge. Like how many clones do you have to take from that? How many seeds? How do, and if you begin to mass produce on that scale, one, you're creating like a monoculture. Two, you're creating the space where like the genetics begin to lose their strength and vitality over time. And if you begin to introduce like, yeah, you know, automation for feeding, watering, et cetera, then you don't have people who are looking for the problems and the pests within the plant. So these massive scale greenhouses are actually like the perfect breeding zones for like the, the crop apocalypse. Um, and we've seen like, um, where this poor management, like, you know, from like, you can just kind of Google on the internet, like, you know, Aurora cannabis or canopy, like their greenhouse, like malfunction and just like huge greenhouses, just like dead. And they're like, you know, it was like leaked by someone who took a picture of just like massive production, just dead. Now, was that because they knew they weren't gonna be able to sell it? Was there something else wrong? Who knows? But, um, it does point that greenhouse isn't an easy solution. I wish I had a greenhouse. I hope I can afford a greenhouse someday because like, yeah, that's where I'd prefer to grow, you know, stable climate, but it's still like, you have to have like healthy living soil systems or hydroponic, you know, whatever way you're doing it, it doesn't mean that it's going to like, uh, push away the problem. It's just going to create new problems. And basically they become incubator zones for these, whatever, like we know powdery mildew, we know botrytis, you know, we know, we knew some of these mites, but we don't know what the pest in five years when it's like really mass produced. Um, you know, some of these, like the russet mites, they weren't a thing out West a handful of years ago. And now they're like everywhere killing crops like mad. And so it's like that shit happens. The more you grow a crop and the more, the less diverse a crop is, the more it becomes a breeding zone. So as we're talking about like genetic selection and stability, like, um, one you can, yeah, you can select for resistance. That's some stuff that's happening. People are talking about doing that, um, but what we've seen in agriculture in general is like the commodification and like the corporatization of of genetics. And then when corp- when people buy up all the genetics or they, you know, have these GMO crops that pollinate other crops that make them so they don't reproduce seed or that you can't grow it because they own it. As the gene pool dwindles, the vitality and resilience of the plant species itself becomes endangered. Um, so that's one thing that we have to be consider like the bigger you get you know if you've got to take a hundred thousand clones like 
how long, how old's your mother? Like your mom's, the mother's not going to last forever. And the more you take from it, the more stresses it takes. Like, you know, they say every clone that you take, it might be predominantly genetically the same, but the terpene, every plant will be different. Like, uh, so there's no like perfect replication. And so people don't really understand how adaptive the plant is and how, how reactive to heat, sunlight, every wind, little, every, animals landing mm, on them. Every factor influences it. And then again, we have these massive companies that are trying, like, of course the Bayer Monsantos of the world are going to come and try to genetically patent and, and like make it so they own it. Like, um, and luckily, you know, but, you know, corn was grown on so many continents. There's so many varieties and like, it's basically been wiped out. And so like, if we're not conscious of how we're approaching the genetics and cultivation and like, yeah, maybe everyone wants OG right now, but like, uh, how is that filtering out and pushing out the other the key important things in the gene pool that like, uh, if we lose track of may bite us in the end. So it's, it's super complicated. That's, that's a long answer to, to the greenhouse thing. I think there's gonna be a lot of greenhouse production. Long story short, I don't believe in indoor cultivation. Like, uh, like it's a big thing right now, but like, it's the most unsustainable thing on the planet from an agriculture perspective. It's like people who are growing mass production under HPS lights in warehouses. You got your lighting, you got your heat, you got your freaking, um, you know, moisture content regulation and these lighting systems. It's like, that's such a draw on the grid. Like they say like 1% of the American grid is, is from, from cannabis at this point. It's like, that's, that's substantial. Is that cause a home grows or industrial scale? Like, you know, like the, like this, the warehouses out West, man, they've got like hundreds of thousands of plants under lights indoors in warehouses. I didn't realize that. Like fucking huge. Like, we dwarfing anything you've ever imagined, like indoor cultivation out west. It makes sense though, because that's where the money is in the medical and rec. Totally, and it's it's stable. You know, it's all these things play into the why, but it's also I think we're going to see a lot more pushback. You know, we live in a world that's like subsidized energy costs. Like we we don't actually pay for the real price of gas and oil and electricity. These things that you know they're actually showing where there's like big cannabis production, the cost of electricity goes up because it's such a draw on the system in those areas. Um so it's it's kind of like the bitcoin thing. You know, people are just going to places where it's cheap and then it causes the cost to go up and it's like incredibly energy intensive. And so from an industry that wants to claim itself green or sustainable, you know, and have this like great opportunity, it's like, well, that's fucked up. You know, it's like, it's actually bad production systems. Now there's going to be, it show points to opportunities for business. It's like, if you can innovate around electricity, around lighting, um, you know, all these things that like, I think it points to the business opportunity to, to be disruptive and, and to create solutions that can offset that. Cause otherwise like, I'm not gonna be afraid to point fingers and be like, your means of production is the worst, like literally on the environment. Like it's actually bad. And if you can't claim that, then like, what are you doing in the space? That's a good point you have to think of being a total steward in this industry. Totally. And yeah. that's, that the reality is like, we actually are stewarding an industry. This is an industry in its infancy. There's also been a, like, it's in its infancy on a commercial public level, but it's also something that's had its roots, you know, it's, it's ancient. It's never stopped being cultivated. And so as it becomes a give, give public eye, you know, come to light, um, when the rest of the world is being asked to adapt to the environmental concerns and, um, like, it's it's this industry can't you know turn its other eye it's like it, it come, it's just a level of of integrity and um that my generation can't look away from um 
So it's like it's we're on this cutting edge. Like, yeah, maybe you can continue to do that. But like uh, it's one of those things of like, what's what's the risk and who's the benefit benefit for? So do you like with the, the USDA come out as a grower's perspective where you stand on the <laughs> no. USDA? USDA, they don't know what they're doing. It's, the, it's, they it's want horrific. the DA involved. I can't believe it. Yeah, it's Number like, okay, well, it's like we just federally legalized. Now you want to bring the people who like govern drugs to, why? Because of 0.3% THC, which is an absolute farce, you know? Which so, could be better mi- mitigated by processors and tracked through processors yeah. than it can by killing loads of plants. Yeah. Everybody, everybody the, every processing, let me just put this out there for everybody right now and the USDA to remind you, every processing company can buy a piece of equipment that mitigates THC, pulls it aside, document it, and then dispose of it. Or even better, how about you sell it to the medical and recreational marijuana companies mm-hmm. that can use it, research from it, and maybe use it for their products so now they're less stressed and you help the whole industry as a whole. Heaven forbid. Yeah. And you can track all this through processors. It's not like processors are going to sit there and, and give it away. Like they, They're fine with it because like, the processors don't want to work with that anyways because they're making products that are generally CBD or CBG, something that doesn't pop people on tests. So they don't want that THC anyways. I mean, and that's just today. Like We're still talking like this industry isn't going to evolve like if 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 cannabis is still schedule one in three years like something's messed up you know it's like if if we're not again like we're talking about single a single molecule is holding up the most uh, like the biggest industry of my of of our lives that's 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 emerging you know it's like a single molecule and not only that it's a tenth of a uh, the hundredth of a percentage point over a arbitrary number is then put something in a schedule one category with meth with heroin you know it's just like uh, it's a joke you know i'd actually had an email exchange with uh, dr ernest small he's based out of canada he's been one of the leading researchers in north america of cannabis since like the 70s you know the canadian government asked him to research it specifically looking at um, the differences an opportunity for um, industrial hemp um, and like, resin-based production. And so he's the one who came up with that 0.3%. And uh, you know, I heard him at that Canadian Horticulture Society saying, I spend a lot of my time apologizing for that number because that number is not what people think it means. The 0.3% is a differentiator of grain and fiber, industrial crops versus what crops might go more towards resin production has nothing to do with the potential for abuse of the THC molecule. In fact, I have this in writing saying it's probably okay. Even 1% doesn't hold a likelihood for abuse. Um, So it's like we're all this whole industrial hemp, this hemp industry is built up on this number 0.3%. And it's literally not about the THC production. It's not about abuse of, of a molecule. It's about Oh yeah, these are like the grain and fiber varieties and those are more the resin production. And that might be something rooted in cultivars that maybe were once what we might call sativa or indica or ruderalis, which is beginning also to lose its, you know, its grounding because of how mixed these populations are. Um, So I think, yeah, USDA is about to either shoot, they're about to shoot every farmer in the foot and shoot themselves in the foot. Um, first and foremost, the regulations are so extensive, are going to be so expensive to implement that most states, I'm, and this is coming from, I can't drop, name drop here, but like hearing from someone on the inn in New York State saying, word on the street for New York State is we might not even submit an application and just tell USDA to like, okay, you want to create this problem, you regulate it. 
Yeah, you come in because do it. we don't have the money to do it. So if USDA has to regulate it, how are they going to regulate fifty different states? Like, you know, imagine how many people they're going to have to hire just to do this third party testing to come cut down all these farmers' crops who are point one point zero one percent over and, and now are growing quote marijuana that they're going to have to burn. You know, it's like it's it's just insane. And they're talking about a law enforcement official will check every farm. So I said this in a previous episode with Aiden from New York Hemp Industries Association. And I said, oh, yeah, so they're just going to have random sheriffs. They're going to teach them how to take samples. And then in any court of law, it would be shot down because you could just show how the samples aren't taken correctly by someone who's not trained properly. Like, it's a big farce. It is so so funny. So expensive. It's like, so, yeah. Like the DEA, what, what, you're going to take them off meth and fentanyl for potentially hot plants? Because that would have to be done every fall. Yeah. Every fentanyl, meth dealer everywhere would know DEA agents are all sitting on harvest farms. So let's ramp up production. Hey, we're bringing all the coke in from Columbia in the fall during harvest season because the DEA has no resources for to, to stop it's, us it's insane um and then yeah so looking at cheek, but. like what what's the cost to get it to be a dea approved lab you know um i was just speaking with a gentleman who's like they're iso certified like they've done everything like they're already a laboratory that does high grade medical testing and they went to go to apply for a dea lab and it's like you have to have a you have to have an approval by the narcotics department in in new york state and then the federal level. So you have to be able to like that level of like certificate, like really, like really that every single, like we already have a bottleneck of testing across the state, let alone across the country. So like now we're going to make it that much harder, that much more expensive for existing businesses to get involved, to relieve the bottleneck of testing, to relieve the efficiency and the transparency required for a sustainable, like developing like platform and project. It's like, it's, um, how about we get to the root of some things? Okay. How about EPA? Let's talk about you creating some testing standards that could be used for every cannabis lab in the country. Let's start with that. Let's yeah. start, with some, start with some foundational stuff. USDA, let's stop putting people in the fields. Let's put it in the hands of the processors, and then you can send people to processors and work with processors closely. That would probably help anyways because then you ensure everybody's GMP certified uh, and following the right protocols inside of processing centers. There's less processing centers than there are growers. It's a no-brainer. There's 400 growers in New York State. And how about this? Not one 30-party testing lab in New York State for growers to go to except to send to Cornell. Otherwise, they're going out of state for all their third-party testing And, and there's much. so many labs that want to be, but, but New York State's like, they're not giving approval. They're saying like, oh, yeah, you can maybe offer the service, but people are scared. And there's not these standardized procedures. You know, like the, the HPL... Uh, all the testing systems, like it's pretty damn standard. And if you talk to someone who's in the medical testing industry, like that's simple science, but we just need to know the protocol because they don't want to fuck up. They want to be in alignment with business. They want to be standardized. And there's no standardization for, for sample prep right now in the cannabis industry. Everybody's doing it slightly different versus if you have any element on the elemental table, a lab can, from Florida can call a lab in New York or a mm-hmm. lab in California, and they're all doing sample prep the same way for, for titanium or, or what metal they're testing for, lead, whatever. But yeah, for cannabis... Every lab could be different. Some labs you call to, and they won't even give you proprietary information. Totally. They don't want to work with the SOPs with you so you can get some validation. So now you got all these people sending different testing labs. And let's say a company, this is true, folks. I'm just going to put this out there for you. A grower and a processor. Let's say a processor is buying biomass from a grower. You could send, the grower could send it to one testing lab, the processor can send it to another, and then maybe they both send it to a third one. And all those could be slightly different, the results based on sample prep and the solutions they use to dilute. Mm-hmm. Folks, that's how simple these, so when you start seeing FDA 
coming out here against companies in the third-party testing. I hope they use the same lab every single time. They talk to these companies about SAMPREP. I know they're not, but this is all the conversation needs to happen because you could have an HPLC machine on your site, have it calibrated a certain way. Um, the, these machines, they're all subtleties to these machines in, in, in these laboratories, folks. I'm just going to tell you. That's why there's certain standards by the EPA for sample prep to make sure things are done the same everywhere. There's not in the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. And back to testing, it's like USDA is saying, you, ta- you take what they want next year, 15 days out before harvest, which, okay, now talk about bottleneck. Well, that bottleneck just became, you know, like pencil lead thin. Because how many places, like, if what if, you know, what if a thousand acres are ready to be harvested in the same week? How the hell are we going to get enough people to go out and take those 15 day in advance testing? Let alone if that, like, if that testing comes back bad. Well, do you have an opportunity to retest it? Uh, was it sample size? Was it production? Was it the way it was carried? Like, you know, all these things that could be a factor that applied to why that crop might not uh, be in, in, uh, in alignment with the law. And then let alone taking like the top, you know, 10th or not even 10th, but like the top part of the plant to look at, if we're going for biomass, like biomass is, is the leaf, you know, probably not that much stock, but it's a leaf and bud, you know, at the very least. And so like, and the leaf and bud from the tippy top of the plant to the bottom of the plant is different year round, or it's different through these stages of production. You know, the, the fruit of the, the cannabis plant ripens at different stages. So if you take that top percent, yeah, maybe that that might be closer to 1% total THC. But the reality is the rest of the plant is so low that it'll bring it down way below anything. So it's like, if we're talking about, and this is how a lot of farmers who are going for the biomass, they're not interested in taking the tops off the plant and selling it to a smokable flower market. You know, I can understand that's where it gets a little confusing where it's like, how do we- So glad you brought up smokable flower. That was the next subject. So you keep going on that tangent if you want, you're fine. But it's like, the the a predominant amount of the farming community one grew what would be considered a hot crop this year because total THC content would not be below 03 percent and does that mean they grew marijuana no you know if if you take the whole plant and emulsify it that's giving you an idea of what the total cannabinoid content is these people are cutting the plants at the base hanging them stripping them shucking them into one ton toters that's your biomass you grab a handful of that you emulsify that that's what your test is going to look like it's not just that top five percent or whatever you know top 10 inches of the bud it's like yeah of course of course that's going to show a specific most likely higher because it is a mature part of the plant um which if anyone who knows cannabis, yeah, you harvest in stages. You take the tops, you take the second tops, you take the third tops. You can continue to take high quality cuts off of a plant through time if you know what you're doing. And that could all go towards craft high quality production, even high quality, like maybe not biomass for ethanol, but like, you know, like live rosin, etc. And that's where you're taking care of it in a different way versus this like bulking harvesting process. And so from a smokable perspective, it's like, the market's been here. It's growing. People like to smoke things. It's probably better than tobacco. Don't quote me on that, but it's like, prove prove me right or prove me wrong. At this point, we don't have enough information out there. People are making hand over fist selling smokable flour right now. I enjoy smoking hemp flour, you know, almost more than THC at this point, given things I've been through physically, like with my health. It's like, yeah, that serves. Um, so we're looking at... This does. This brings up a good question, though, and this is where we're looking at that one percent, because like 
most smo- no smokable flour is below 0.3% THC unless it was harvested prematurely. Um, and well, it all depends what you classify as THC, right? Because yeah, it's it, either delta nine straight out or the yeah, THCA, yeah. which is what converts over when it's decarboxylated or heated, right? Yeah. So, so a lot of times it could be 0.3, but then the, the THC number A number is like 0.6 over there, so the whole thing's hot. That's actually pretty damn standard. It's like yeah, probably 0.2 to 0.3 percent. T- Delta 9, so technically legal by New York state law. And then THCA is probably between 4 and 7%, or 0.4 and 0.7, which total THC content, once that acid is decarboxylated, probably weighs out to something like, yeah, probably 0.5%. It's a metric, so yeah. it's like 0.88, something like that, or 0.82. I apologize. We're, we're, still, we're still talking about non-alcoholic beer here. Like, you know, <laughs> no, we're, not talking, we're not talking whiskey. We're not talking like, you, you know, these points. 100 proof. It's yeah. like, we're talking about something that like literally has no psychotropic let, impact. Let me you. put it in perspective perspective for you folks if you go to massachusetts there's a dispensary that has a flavor called novocaine it is a great sativa i love it i've purchased it in the past and that is like 28 percent thc okay right now we're talking about 0.3 folks let's put this in perspective 0.3 and it it becomes a thing and if it has cbd in it it, the way the THC interfaces with our system is completely different. You know, one product of choice I've experienced in the past is called CBD Shark Shock. My, my, the first cannabis plant I consumed besides LA Confidential that I was like, wow, this one genetic, it feels like my genetics are responding. I was like, wow. I'm like, I could give a speech on this. I'm functional, like crystal clear, no anxiety, like um, I don't feel called to like go back to it and smoke more. It's more like if I take, if I consume a little bit, it's like, boom, like hits me. It was a one-to-one, 8% and 8%. Wow. That's and perfect. That's, that's my medicine. Like that's, that's my, my, my wellness. That's my recreation. Like that's something that actually I prefer. And it's like the science behind the endocannabinoid system. If you consume THC with CBD, the chain reaction basically makes it so the C- the THC is less impactful from a psychotropic perspective. It's mellower, it's more balanced, and it interfaces us in a more like, uh, uh, in our bones, in our in our system in a way versus just going straight to our head, let's say. That's right, because it's hitting more CB receptors. Mm-hmm. And because of diversification, more CB receptors are accepting this because it's like, oh wait, this isn't the THC just that I'm used to, it's just the CBD. This is a nice mix. And your whole body is like, that entourage effect, right? Totally. That entourage effect. Yeah. And so back to the smokable, it's like, it's, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, all where I'm at with this smokable flower is like, there's a bunch of people selling a lot of bullshit coming from out of state. And it's probably, I've, I've found the powdery mildew. I've seen the botrytis and people are making hand over fist selling at retail. You know, we're talking about people who are buying pounds. I'm going to buy your biomass pound for 25 bucks and then I'm going to sell it retail for three and a half thousand dollars because I'm nickeling it out in eighths and dimes and grams. Like, first of all, great because it shows that people are still willing to buy cannabis no matter what the THC content is. People want it. Well, not just that. Also, biomass is usually dried faster, so it's not properly cured. Totally. So it's a little it's, harsher it's, to yeah. smoke. And right? it's like, like it's, it's, no one took care of that. But like, that's what's happening. People are importing like, you know, one of those hundred acre farms, like their biomass that then they're trimming up and selling it for smokable flour. Okay. It, no matter what, it alludes to the fact people want it. But the reality is there is no market for small scale, small, medium scale farmers in New York state for growing for biomass. You talk to the amount of labor and production that goes into cannabis production. 
Most of these guys would rather grow pumpkins or something else, a specialty crop that they can get, you know, X amount of returns or turn it over multiple times and get a higher yield in a diversified crop than just growing for biomass, where again, people are getting paid, they're lucky, 20, 30, maybe 50 bucks a pound, but no, and that's unless you got something that's really high and, and it's basically been trimmed. So it's like, when we're talking about an industry that will impact the farming community that needs it the most, that, support, that is a backbone of our community through you know, community-based agriculture, through CSAs, through sustainable organic you know, regenerative production, it's not you know, a 40-acre grow that is like you know, mass-produced and then going for biomass. It's like the window of opportunity is for smokable flour or high-quality, quote, biomass that's going to be more towards the specialty craft CO2 rosin right. extraction. And that's where like, you know, they're getting... You know, out west, people like in the cannabis industry, people were getting like 50 bucks a pound, 50 to 125 bucks a pound for their trim, let alone stuff that's more like biomass and buds. Like your bees are going to go for 200 bucks a pound, you know? So it's like, of, but that's of course has THC content in it. But if we're looking at that model, it's like there's no reason why high quality craft, I'll call it not biomass, but like the D's, the D flower, the last cuts that you can just strip, like that stuff's still worth 100 bucks a pound because it's going to be pressing rods and like high, high quality extraction. Um, and it's grown intentionally as hung and cured in a good way. Um, let alone again, like, you know, the amount of yields that you can pull off of an acre, like people don't realize that out West, like the cannabis grow, like a hundred plants is a lot out there. It's a lot of plants. It, it takes so many people to, to process, you know, maybe you have a five person team that's running a hundred plant grow, but it still takes 20 people to trim all that cannabis that comes out of it forever it takes forever to and so it. now we're talking about people talking about acres like yeah i want to grow an acre like that's fucking 1500 plants man you have no <laughs> you don't Wait know to see how much time you're gonna be on the bench trimming that man and it's like let alone harvesting that and harvesting it on time and harvesting it and drying it and curing it in a way that's going to get you maximum value so the way we're looking at from a an advocacy perspective and maybe more of the production side because hemp lab is my not-for-profit hat where i it's like i'm rooted in building community there's also this part of me like i know how to i know how to plant i know how to take care of plants i know about harvesting and i'm specialized in the drying curing harvesting place so it's like beginning to work with farmers being like yo grow 100 plants grow 500 plants and we'll help you learn and then ensure that you get these these high quality smokable flower quality like Let's just call it premium quality because we can't say smokable. Let's just going to say, yeah, let, let, and then the game, and then you got to sell it either out of state or sell it out of state and bring it back into the state because of the nonsense rules. It's oh, just, gosh. it's just, and that's what there's farmers who are sitting on their little acre of high quality premium flour that you're going to make them cut their margin by a hundred percent by selling it for 20 bucks a pound versus the 200 they minimum. No, the reality is this smokable flour. When the retailer is making $3,200 a pound, there's no reason why every farmer shouldn't get $500 a pound for the premium flour. Realistically, okay, we can drop it down to 400, but if it's trimmed, it's like minimum 400. Realistically, if it's hand trimmed, like we're talking $600 pounds because that's what pays for the labor, pays for everything. And that allows the farmer to rebuild next year. Otherwise right. we're recreating the wheel of death for the farming community. And again, there are margins in this industry. People are pretend like, you know, uh, I respect all the industry that's out there, but the reality is it doesn't take all that much money to make one gram of CBD. That 1000 milligram CBD you know, tincture, it didn't cost $70 to make. And that's why they're charging it for 120. You know, it's like, 
we can begin if you actually have insight and can see where the margins are and the farmer still only got 25 bucks for that and it probably you know i'll use a person example if i provide the biomass out west we had a colleague who would provide us with our co2 extracted cannabis uh you know oil oil five dollars a gram that's the reality of production the actual cost people don't know that shit and like i i don't mean i actually don't fucking care because the farmer's getting screwed and the reality is there are margins through this industry to pay people livable wages to pay the farmers what they deserve and still make a god load of money by selling a high quality product and that's the differentiator it's brands brands are going to differentiate quality is going to differentiate and that's really it and there's and, and then you hope processors are going to make partnerships with farmers so everybody is doing well because at the at the end of the day there are unfortunately there aren't enough good processors out there across the country truly. Now, and i think that's and really specifically in this about, state right? and there's a huge opportunity to fill that gap and again some people don't want to grow for smokable flour but the reality is like people getting offered 50 cents a point like that's some bullshit at the same time when we're talking large-scale industrial production for grain where it's going to be four to five percent you know uh biomass that's aside from the grain yeah maybe that is only worth 10 cents maybe it is only worth 50 cents but again the current agriculture like the the infrastructure the way people are producing right now it's like um we gotta be fair especially when the margins are high you know i know a few businesses that have intentionally chose to go with a three dollar contract this year and i think that's good business and in fact if you're a grower out there don't put anything in the ground unless you have a contract it's like it's literally not worth your livelihood, your time and energy, your friends, all the things you're going to have to call on to produce this plant if you don't have an end goal. If you don't know your market and you don't have, uh, you know, you could play the game like the, the commodity game where you sit on it. Like a lot of people are like, yeah, well, this is what we do. This is why silos were invented. You grow a bunch of corn, you sell some of it for cheap up front, then you sit on it till the market bounces back and then they pay their dollar. We're going to see everything, but from a business perspective, like there's going to be a lot of sad people who grew way too much, who didn't have a market or they were told they were going to have a market or, and then when it came down to, to, to purchase, they say, Oh, the process says we're not going to pay you till we sell the product. Sorry. It's like, I, I mean, I get that. And it's like, have a fucking contract so you know what you're getting into. Even and, if that's and why, part of it. And why is it the processors somehow have to be have to be like that? Is because they can't get banks to fund them up front, right? So totally. there's actually it goes. It's a lot of processors don't have enough money to pay for the biomass. 100 for, the, for these farmers. So that's why there's a lot of these deals out there where where processors want to come and have these with farmers and stuff. So it's it's at the end of the day, make sure everybody knows this isn't a processor farmer thing. A lot of times, mm -hmm. this is an industry in its infancy. Number one, totally. And number two, no banks are giving at all to anybody in the hemp industry right now, folks. I, I think that's a huge thing. I don't mean to vilify processors. Oh, you're good. However, yeah. like, there's absolutely predators out there. Like, this is a... Right now, it, it's like, it's a bunch of baby sheep looking to get in, and there's fucking wolves around every corner just picking people off. Whether that's through genetics. Buy my feminized seed. Buy my genetics. My high CBD. Grow like this. You know, crickets. You know, call me when it's time for harvest. I'll help you out. Crickets. You know, uh... Again, oh yeah, well, buy buy my seed off me, grow for me, then I'll buy back as the extractor, and we'll pay you up front. And then it's like, no, we'll pay you after we sell it. And now hearing contracts like, 
okay, next year, grow for us. You grow, you cover all your costs, you give it to us, then we extract it. And then after we sell it, you get 10% of the final sale value. It's like, holy shit, people. Like, that's one way to do business. And that's one way to cr- like cripple people too. So it's like, I, I don't, every, every business has its own story. They have their own background. They have their own difficulties. Again, with the funding issue is substantial. Um, it's, it, it play, it has a weight on everyone, but then there is people, there are people out there who are just like, uh, yeah, their bottom line's money, you know, and that's business as usual. That's functional, but it's also not going to be a long play. It's like, this is the time you either help people out and build your name in the industry, gain connections, build community, create a fabric that will survive the flood, the green rush, the, the multinationals, the out-of-state actors, or you're just setting something up to like make top dollar this month because you know, next year or three years, you're going to sell your, you're going to sell out. So it's like, we're going to see a little bit of everything. And I, I recommend people move towards their, their enclaves, their community, their networks that can be resilient. Because again, like shit's going to hit the fan like three times in the next 10 years. And if you don't have like the right supply chain, the right infrastructure, the right relations, uh, yeah, you're going to be a thing of the past. When you say shit's going to hit the fan, USDA, FDA, and then federal, right? And then yeah. the state regulations. And like the boom and the bust. Like yeah. what happens when we grow a, a million acres of hemp next year? Because that's what everyone wants to do. And the price point goes down to one cent per point. It's like, again. Because there's not enough people processing yet for all the products that can be made from this. We're, we're still too much in the oh, infancy. Yeah, we can't it's do, almost like the farmer wants to jump ahead of the processors, right? Like, well, or, and or the and it's, it's also getting, it's not even that. It's just, it's, um, that's a good, it's an interesting analogy. I wouldn't say that really anyone's at fault because everyone's excited to make money and everyone's getting sold by a different charlatan and, or actually industry experts. There are experts out there. There are people who are doing good business. There are people who have good contracts. Um, but the reality is the hype is really big, but the question, you know, now, now the processors are asking the question, how much of this CBD isolate can we actually sell? Like, is there actually a market for it? And how do you compete with like, you know, all these Western-based extraction companies that have like, they're producing like tens of thousands of kilos uh, a month. It's like, it's insane. So like, there's not, there's the excitement around cultivation. We're going to get X amount per acre. There's this like, you know, the, the reality of a bottleneck, it's a buyer's market. When it's a buyer's market, farmer usually get the grower gets fucked or unless they have good relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's this irony of like, yeah, you could like, you could pick off and find that bottom dollar, but it's like long-term longevity of relationships is going to be more established in the, in the mid zone where it's like, okay, I know it's really going for a dollar, a dollar a point, but we're going to hold our two fifty, which is below our $3. But like the reality is we're going to meet you a little lower because we'll still have margins, et cetera. Um, but you know, that's my hypothetical win-win perspective. But uh, again, when shit's going to hit the fan, it's like, the prices are going to drop out. Multinationals are going to come in and try to buy up market. You know, there's uh, blights, bad seasons. All these things will happen that you can't, ex- you can expect and prepare for, but never be ready for, you know? And unless there's, uh, it's, it's more comprehensive than a, a gentleman's handshake. Um, and it, hopefully it's a relationship that's been built over time and there's reasons to build on that relationship, but then there's opportunity for longevity and like we can deal with the ebbs and flows of whatever is going to happen. And that's for CBDs, for CBG, it's for THC, like all, all this industry, it's going to be these waves. Like right now we, there was a huge, you know, 
Oregon last year had enough cannabis, overproduced cannabis to grow, to smoke for, you know, five years or whatever, some ridiculous number. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, how did that happen? Where like, you know, now we're here in California has a shortage of quality production. And, you know, with, uh, we're seeing pound prices bounce back, like stabilizing where like I saw the price point drop down to as low as like 300 bucks a pound out in California, where the year before was 1200 bucks wholesale. The year before was 1500, you know, realistically it balanced out in like the 600, 800 range in that year. But it's like, we have to, you got to build your business model on the $500 pound from a cultivator of any of these cannabinoids. Um, and again, finding relations, um, that aren't just about the bottom, the lowest, the race to the bottom from the cost, because, you know, quality goes down as well as like, um, yeah, it's to survive. We got to have it be tighter than that. So many things you mentioned. I go another three hours with you. There's one thing I want to touch base with. We can go smokable flower. We can talk about products. We can talk about testing. Um, go down another hour without all these roads. But but I, I want to uh, bring up, it looks like three years really is where it's going to be kind of the happy medium between growers and processors to me in my mind, Makes right? Sense, yeah. uh, um, and that's just because of the R&D that has to go behind this and how far behind we are studies in this country. Mm. Um, I, I wish it would be faster than that, but I just think the good processors and best growers will kind of over that three years kind of filter the top For sure. and hopefully great partnerships. But I think part, partnerships and being human to me are the, is what we keep talking about through this whole episode, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like it is about making sure that you are good and want to have established relationship with someone for a couple of years because at, at, we need to make sure uh, the strains build, right? Mm -hmm. And processors want to continue to use the same ones because then they're going to have consistency of their products. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think this three-year run, it's exciting. We're at the infancy. The FDA, though, we got to mention the FDA. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, it's okay if we go on a little ten-minute diatribe. Whatever we got to do about this, but the FDA is, is troubling because they really are creating where. There's now a buildup of isolate and distillate and broad spectrum and full spectrum right now because everybody's wondering what the FDA is sure. going to allow this to get put into products successfully. And they send these letters out. Uh, this week they sent 15 more letters to companies that weren't processing properly for various reasons, whether or not so they didn't carry the certifications or they were calling themselves dietary supplements and they shouldn't have been or stating things on packaging that, that health benefits. Um, where do you stand on the FDA? Like, I, I support the fact that R&D is very difficult in this industry. There's there's a lot of factors that go into she, the, the speed of mixing, the temperature. There's a lot of factor with CBD and, and putting these cannabinoids in products. So I get it. Where do you sit on this FDA, though? Because uh, I have such mixed feelings. Um, you know, bottom line... CBD is not generally recognized as a safe substance. You know, that's what their, their claim is. Um, you can't put it in food. You can't call it a supplement. Those bottom lines, you know, we're operating in New York State where New York State says you have to call it a supplement. You can't put it in food, but it still has to be a supplement. So, like, we're, we're a nascent industry trying to find our footsteps where companies are investing millions of dollars, most likely of their own money, into these GMPs, these good manufacturing processing uh, facilities that require so much infrastructure to be built out, and now we're hearing things where that like, you know, to be to be built in New York State to the supplement standards, how is that different than what the FDA is being said? So now companies are pouring millions of dollars to build out to supplement standards in New York, where now the FDA is saying no supplements, and how is that going to impact what 
our did we just waste a million dollars in our build out because we're developing it to a standard of supplement? Now we saw that in Oregon, uh, probably 2016, 2017, where like there was fluctuating regulations. The rules were changing. No, you can only have this outlet every so many feet, or you can only have you know your ceilings at this level, etc. That people began to pour all this money to stay compliant, and then the rule would be pushed away, and so they just wasted a million dollars on their facility, and they're in the hole. And that's my biggest concern that with all this fluctuation regulation, people are shooting from the hip to stay compliant. And that means they're pouring money. Um, they're sitting on product. They're not able, there was a bottleneck in the sales channel, all these things that like, that's crippling. Um, you know, FDA is like, you can't put in a food, you can't call it a supplement. Why? Because it's being used, you know, in epidiolics and it's the CBD molecules being used. And it's like, really, you know, we're not gonna be able to use CBD ever because it's in one it's, it's in something that's been patented off of a cannabis derived, like a high THC variety derived CBD and that they made a, a you know, thank goodness, a, 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 something that can help a certain proportion of the community that's served in a very regulated, regulated, controlled environment. Epilepsy specifically folks yeah. for, for, for those who don't know. And yeah. for children, which yeah. is like, hallelujah, like let's continue and innovate. But the reality is we've been consuming cannabis for millennia. The reality is CBD is in more things and cannabinoids are in more things than cannabis. You know, there's cannabinoids in hops. You know, it's like, it's a joke to say that like, we can't do, we can't touch this plant. We can't move this plant. Um, you know, should CBD, it's, it's, it's a should or could, you know, should CBD be in everything? I don't fucking know. Like, does it matter if CBD is in my coffee or it's like, you know, in my, like, uh, my pixie stick, <laughs> like, I, I don't know, but really there's probably some people that would do that. Um, so we have, it is important to look at consumption and isolated molecules, like isolate versus full spectrum. What does that do to the human system? Um, when you're, you know, I do get a little concerned looking at a powder. It's like, yeah, let's go blow some lines of CBD. No, it's like, like really like, well, like that's, that's the caliber. It's like that it becomes refined as a medicine as a, uh, yeah. Once you enter that powder phase, it is kind of like, okay, that's obviously highly refined. And how does that highly refined thing impact our system? So if it's isolate in your gummy, how is that different? Like we're talking about the, the entourage effect. How is that different than a broad spectrum or a full spectrum gummy? And is it actually doing what it's like, is it actually worth doing that? Or is it better to put in the broad spectrum, full spectrum product into that? Because it's going to help. Like, or is it based on each person needs a different delivery And methods. is it wellness based? Is it recreational based? Like to a degree, like FDA, like, can you tell me I can't do this recreationally and I can't put CBD in all my food recreationally? Or is it just a medical thing? Is it just a wellness thing making claims? It's like, you know, ginseng melatonin, CBD, or is it different categories, right? Yeah. And you put ginseng in anything. And like, why can't we just say not approved by the FDA? There's thousands and thousands of products not approved by the FDA. And FDA, last time I checked, you guys have really put out some shit that's poison. Like what, what justifies <laughs> it that what you say is okay? Why should we take that word? Because one molecule is being isolated from a plant of thousands, uh, you know, hundreds of molecules um, because some European company patented it and is selling it in the U.S. It's like, okay, um, that doesn't mean there won't be a headache. Will we see revolution? Will people revolt? Will people continue to do business as usual? Um, I think the biggest thing is like 
don't put anything on your branding that says this is going to help. Serve a recreational market. Serve an informed consumer. Don't pretend to tackle the wellness or medical. Um, I think that's the biggest edge. It's like, great. If if this is you know if this is illegal, is it going to be illegal in a recreation market? Like, is New York going to say you can't put CBD in in your recreation store? Where like you know, can I sell that into the plus twenty one category? Like. Um, there's so many little things where we're going to see between state and federal level, especially these governing bodies. Like, yeah, we need standardization. We need oversight. We need research on this medicine, this plant. We need research on the difference between isolates and full spectrum, et cetera. Um, you know, what about me decarbing my, my flour and just eating my flour? I got a buddy who's turned me on to that. Like we got a, a decarb machine, like eat a gram a day, you know, I'm getting like some great cannabinoid content, getting some decent terps, you know, and some it. good fiber, <laughs> but it's like, a lot of fiber. Yeah, a lot of fiber. Um, I'm pretty sure my my friend, his name's Jacob Fox. Give him a shout out. I'm pretty oh, sure he's, he's developed a, a second stomach like a cow. <laughs> he's eating like an ounce a week. <laughs> I'd like to know how, how he reacts to his body, though. That's what I'd like no, to talk about. You met him. He's the athlete. Yeah, oh, yeah. We're, oh, yeah. By the way, we are going to have, yes. Yeah, oh, is that Jacob? Oh, we're definitely have yeah, Jacob on. Yeah. And when we have Jacob on, we're going to talk further about another business that Zach is, is on. I wanted to touch on this, but we'll mm. save we'll save it for him. Uh, but just other things that the hemp plant could be used for. Mm. How about composting, mm. folks? Like, I, mean, I mean, we were talking about a bottleneck. Here are processing companies that are doing, you know, whether a thousand pounds or 10,000 pounds. They're going to have a lot of stuff that like may have a market down the road, but right now, where is it going to go? And how are you going to, there is no waste in this industry. Hopefully we can design and leverage what is quote, you know, quote, air quotations, waste or byproduct and put it back into the systems that feed itself. So yeah, Jacob and myself, we work for a vermiculture company that does municipal scale composting. And we have a system that literally makes the best stuff on earth. Like the worms and the microbes that are developed in vermiculture, worm composting is literally, it's like, it's like, uh, it's an inoculant for the soil. It's it's basically like probiotics. You know, you take probiotics because you are what you eat. Your gut governs your life, your emotions, your energy, like everything is governed by the bacteria in your gut. Same with the soil. So smart. I can't believe I've never mentioned that before, but you're right. And same with the soil. And so when we're talking about mass scale agriculture that's poisoned the earth, that's literally stripped the earth, it's like it's we're dependent on, you know, high nutri like high nutrient, low value fertilizers that like 60 percent or something like that runs off into local tributaries and the plants only take out a proportion of it. And the reality is if there's not the microbes to make these nutrients and fertilizers bioavailable, then it's nothing. So it comes down to like. Just the same if we eat, you know, if we don't have the microbes that can break down the products in our gut, then it can't actually be made available to us. And so it's like, you got to think about that. But that's, that is another story for another day. All right, my man, we, we took a lot of your time. You are a busy man to, to have you here for two hours in the studio. We're really, really excited to have you and have other people listen to. Uh, I mean, I can't, I've never heard someone say the F word and it sounded like it, it was like a, a saint saying it. Like it, it is the bomb. Like it, I didn't even cringe. Like, dude, you are passionate. You are helping bring industry together, Western New York. The two events I've been to that you've put on uh, have taught me so much. I can't even tell you, I passed a lot of that knowledge on through this podcast. Mm. So even before you're on your, your, uh, energy and, and your enthusiasm in the industry has shown through this podcast. So I, I want to make sure you it, understand man. that. No, thank you for doing what you're doing. And 
to the listeners out there, I didn't know I couldn't use the F word. Oh, no, you can. <laughs> okay. No, you can. No, oh, we're all good. There's nothing off the table. It was just saintly when I said it. was great. Okay, no, it sounded on. great. No, like some people come across as hard. If I say it, my family wants to kill me for it, but yeah. you, you made it sound like it was perfect. So okay, I love cool, it. cool. Um, but at the end of the day, thank you very much. And one last thing on skiing. Your favorite place, if you right now Ooh. were able to go skiing someplace. Oh, man. Uh, you know, because your body was healthy and uh-huh. you could do it the way you like to do uh-huh. it. What's that one place that you would say, is it home at Bristol or is it somewhere else? Uh, probably backcountry Whistler. I got an uncle who's an expert out there and I would just, I would send it down, whatever. <laughs> a business partner asked me to go to Whistler in February and I so know I shouldn't go, but just the word Whistler and knowing, you know, what the history of it is now that you just say it, I almost mm-hmm. feel like now I have to go. Yeah. So Yeah, cool. Well, let me know. I'll push you in contact with oh, a good gosh. guy. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, that would be a, that would be a, a serious like explanation point on the trip. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you. Uh, Bob, thank you for being here today. I appreciate you. Yep. You're the best. Yep. 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 Bob, Bob, this is my Bob Bye. Yep. Okay, everybody, have a wonderful Christmas. The next will be just after Christmas, around the New Year's, Well, the next episode will come out. So I hope everybody has a great Christmas. Thank you, Zach. And everybody, please spend time with family. Get out off your couch. Just because it's snowy, just because it's cold, doesn't mean we don't need to exercise and get our blood flowing. Remember, it's all about the cannabis plant, and it's all about exercise. Have a great day, everybody. That's right. Bye.